As you take your seat, would you please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. Um, You can find that on page 903 of your pew Bible, if you wish to choose that uh, Bible. You're welcome to that. This summer, we've had a few times where I've been able to preach in the pulpit in the morning, and we've kind of continued what I've been doing through the upper room discourse on the the occasions I've preached, and uh, we've been able to look recently at this high priestly prayer in John 17. This is uh, Jesus praying after he has uh, spent the last few hours with his disciples. He's given them the, the Lord's Supper. He's washed their feet. Judas has left him and has now going to seek the ones who are going to come and uh, arrest Jesus. And he's preparing the remaining eleven for his departure, that is, for his cross. He knows what he is about to face, and now he has turned his attentions from his disciples uh, to the Heavenly Father, seeking him in prayer. And so we will conclude this prayer this morning as we look at John 17, verses 20 through 26, keeping in mind this is the prayer that Jesus is praying after the upper room discourse and before he goes to the cross. Hear now the words of our Savior. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. As far the reading of God's word, would you please pray with me? Our Savior Jesus Christ, thank you for giving us these words to have some glimpse into the heart of the triune God and your desire for us. Oh Lord, I pray that you would align our hearts to be in union and unison with yours. And so Holy Spirit, work in us today to not only understand your word, but to believe it. Sanctify us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had any moments like I've had where you might be anxious about the future, wondering what, what is going to happen. Perhaps it's a, you're at a cusp of a, a big, important decision, and you know that whatever decision you make is going to affect the rest of your life. Those are big, weighty moments, aren't they? 
Especially when you're aware that this is what I'm deciding on. And I've I've had those moments before and I've thought, you know, it really would be nice, God, I pray this sort of prayer, uh, it would be really nice if you could just tell me in the Bible what I should do. Could there be a verse that said, Ben Thomas, do this? And that would clear things up for me quite a bit. Thank you. Well, when I was praying such prayers, I wasn't quite as aware of Scripture as I am now because I did not know that actually I am in the pages of Scripture, and so are you. If you are a believer in Christ, you find yourself here. In the verses that we just read, on the lips of our Savior, praying for you before he goes to the cross and dies. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? The final verses of this great prayer. We see that Jesus is praying for the church that has yet to be established. And so that means if you are a Christian today, Jesus was praying for you while he was on earth here in this moment. We've already seen in this prayer, after he's spoken to the disciples, he's preparing to go to the cross. He goes to the Savior, he goes to the Father in prayer, and you might be interested in, in such a moment, what would our Savior pray for? And we've seen in the first five verses, he prays for the Father to glorify him and for Jesus, uh, or for the Father to be glorified and for Jesus to glorify the Father. And then we've seen in verses 6 through 19, Jesus is praying in particular for his disciples. He's praying for the men whom he's leaving behind and he will send out as apostles later on. But now in verses 20 through 26, Jesus turns the attention of his prayer away from his disciples and he's looking through the ages of Christian history yet to come. And he prays for Christians of all times, and that includes you. It's amazing, the Son of God for whom and by whom all things are made, praying for you. You might be wondering, well, well, Jesus, then what, what are you praying for when you pray for me? It's interesting. He doesn't pray that we would you know, take the bull by the horns and go and conquer the world. He doesn't pray that you would be relieved from your difficult trial that you're currently going through. Though those aren't necessarily wrong things to pray for, that's not really Jesus' priority here. Considering the context of this prayer, we can know that what Jesus is praying for, this is a priority of him. This is not something he thinks of, oh, and one more thing, God. No, this is his priority. And the priority of prayer for you is that we, as believers, would be one. That the church would have unity in him. 
Jesus prays for our unity. In verse 21, he says, Jesus prays that they may all be one. And then verse 22, that they may be one even as we, the Father and Son, are one. And then verse 23, that they may be perfectly one. He keeps hitting the same note over and over. And it says in verse 23, that they may be perfectly one. Jesus is praying for the future church and his great concern for you is our unity. Is that you be united with his people. And I think this is important to see and understand because this may not be something that you think about a lot. But where you are most clearly referenced in the pages of scripture, of all of the things that Jesus could have prayed about for you, he prays for unity. Praise for unity. And I want us to learn this morning about the unity that Jesus prays for. And there are four features in this passage I want us to consider. First is the scriptural or historical unity that Jesus prays for. Second, we'll see the spiritual unity. Thirdly, we'll see a visible unity. And then fourthly and finally, we'll see what is the goal? What is the point of this unity? Why is it important? Well, first, let's consider the scriptural and historical unity that Jesus prays for. You see, the unity that we may think of when you hear people talking about Christian unity and the church being united uh, is, is something that is actually grounded in scripture. It is grounded in history. Again, this is something we may not think about, where we place ourselves in the timeline of Christian history. But here we see that there is a line that runs from you all the way back to the apostles of Jesus Christ. All the way back to the disciples. Look at verse 20 and 21 again. Jesus prays not for these only, that is, the disciples, but also for those who will believe. That's you. That they may all be one. Isn't that interesting? That they, who? That you and the disciples, that you and the apostles may be one. You see, Jesus does not want, his concern is that we not deviate from the gospel message that the disciples originally preached 2,000 years ago. We are tied to them through their word. That's what verse 20 says. Through their word. That's how we're tied to the apostles. We speak a different language. We live in a different culture. We eat different food. Uh, They probably didn't have iPhones back then, so they didn't have the blue mark on their text messages, so they'd be hard to get a hold of. And yet, we are connected to them because... Of their message, the gospel message of the saving work of Jesus Christ. This is how the church began. It didn't begin with with a really powerful and magnetic strategic planning meeting. No, it was through Pentecost, it was through the, the preaching of the apostles. I heard Dr. Thomas. This morning say, you know, what kind of marks would you give Jesus on evangelism? Well, we'd probably give him low marks. That is, Jesus' plan was for the apostles to be the ones 
to preach His Word and to gather the nations to themselves, to to Him. To gather the nations to Him. The church in Acts, the book of Acts, they devoted themselves to what? They devoted themselves to the teaching and preaching of the apostles. It was their message that brought people into the church. It was their message that brought people into the church. It was their message that unified the church. In other words, it is the Word of God. It is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In the introduction to 1 John, the Apostle John who writes his Gospel speaks of believers having fellowship with us, that is the Apostles, and with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. If you want to have fellowship with God, What do you need? You need to receive the apostolic message. You may wonder, what is the apostolic message? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God the Father sent His Son, Jesus, to be born in this world, to live a perfect life and die on the cross, a death that you could not die. And He he carries the weight of your sin, the penalty of your sin, and He is buried and He rose again from the grave. And by believing in Him, you will be saved. That is the message of the apostles, and that is the message that is preached in this pulpit here today. And that is how fellowship of the Christian community, the fellowship of God's people happens. By the preaching and receiving of the apostolic message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, what we believe today, it's not anything new. And you should take comfort in that. We're not creating something that's a, that's a fresh idea for the world to see. We don't have any novel thoughts here. Rather, our goal is to preach, to read, to receive the same thing the apostles preached and taught. The same thing that God the Son sent His disciples to go and do. That's what ties us together in history that's tied up based upon Scripture. Our unity is based upon Scripture. And that is also what ties us together with one another. With the Christians who have lived even generations before us, who have lived and died before you have. We believe the same message. And Christians today who live in different countries or speak different languages or eat different foods than you do, and yet are converted under the same message of James and Peter and John and the other apostles. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the same gospel. The same good news of the Son of God who came to save sinners. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that unites us. It's not our love for fried chicken. It's not our shepherding groups. As good as those things are, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you meet somebody else who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have a bond unlike any other. And it cannot and will not be destroyed. And so we need to understand... when. Because we'll talk about unity here a little bit more. But when we talk about unity within the church, if it is unity that's based upon anything else than the apostolic gospel, then it's a lie. Unity apart from the gospel is not true, lasting unity. 
And God requires submission to His Word. You'll see belief in the Gospel and the submission to it. It's not only submission to the same doctrine that the apostles preached, but submission to the life as well of the apostolic gospel. So we read in the pages of Scripture that we're supposed to speak the truth in love to one another. We are to do nothing out of selfish ambition. We are to consider others as more important than yourself. And you can think of other commands. And so you can say, well, I believe in the gospel as given to us in the Scripture, but if your life doesn't reflect that in any way, then, brother, you are wandering in the dark. What does Jesus say to his disciples? He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you have love for one another? So there's a scriptural, historical unity, but there's also a spiritual unity. Look at verse 21. I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's an amazing verse. It's one of those verses Pastor Dean was talking about, how hard his verse is. Well, I challenge you to try to understand this verse. How do we comprehend this prayer? How do we comprehend that the unity and love that you and I are supposed to have for one another is somehow supposed to mirror the perfect unity that exists within the triune Godhead? How can I understand what exists between the triune Godhead? That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. It's something that is over our heads to fully comprehend the love within the triune God. Now we'll say though that Jesus is not somehow saying that he's lost his individuality. He's not lost his personhood in the Father. He's not saying that somehow the Father has been absorbed into the Son, this sort of, you know, kind of meshing of persons. There are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but, but one God. There are three persons, and yet there's a what we call a mutual indwelling. There's a oneness in this threeness. I'm not going to try to take this any further. Whenever you do analogies of the Trinity, it almost always leads you to heresies, so let us be careful of that. I think it's okay to say that this is beyond my comprehension. This is a mystery of God. And yet, at the same time, we can also see and understand that there is a great union between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that union is to be mirrored. It is to be uh, presented here amidst the diversity of the church. We are different persons, like different things. We have different ideas, we have different backgrounds, and yet we are to love one another as the Father, Son, and Spirit love one another. You see, the unity of the church must be of the Spirit. 
It must be of the Spirit. Ephesians 4 exhorts us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, our unity is something that is, it comes from God. It comes from God, but it's also sustained by God, the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who brings the identity and union of God into our midst. Now, I will say there are some analogies here. Paul gives us an analogy. He says that we are the body. We have different parts of the body, the fingers and the toes and so on. And Christ is the head. And so we are joined together to one another. And we belong to one another as a body does under the headship of Jesus Christ who is our head. And so Jesus here is praying for the union of those who have been born again in Christ. He's praying for a union that that transcends all other features of our lives. Greater than any other union, whether it's your, your marriage or some other cultural or national or ecclesiastical union. Saying this is a union that is born of the Spirit. And it is maintained of the Spirit. It is a spiritual unity. We see also that this unity that Jesus prays for is a visible unity. Look with me at verse 23. He says, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So Jesus prays for the unity of his people, To be something that is moving towards perfection. Something that is moving towards completion. We already are one in Christ. If you're born again, you're brought into the body of Christ and we are united. And yet Jesus knows this and he's praying, Lord, would your people, would my people, would the church, the people who believe in the apostolic message continue to grow in their union and love for one another to the point where he says that they may become perfectly one. To become perfectly one. To become so perfectly united that the world will take notice and say, wow, this is not of this world. So much so that Jesus says, I want them to be so perfectly one that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. What does the world see when they see the church? Is the spiritual reality of our union with one another in Christ, is that that visible to the world? You may have certain griefs with one another, perhaps even some other believing denominations. And you may not think it's important what the world, that the world sees and hears your opinion. But it is important to our Savior. It is important to Jesus Christ that when the world looks at the church, What the world sees is a love for one another that is not of this world. Another way to think about this, why would the divided world 
take seriously the witness of a divided church. Why would they? It's just like everything else in this world. We need to be humble. We need to recognize that when we stir up and cause division with one another, we're sinning against God. We need to understand that. Now, this does not mean we have to be uniform in everything that we think, do, how we do things. But there better be grace. A gospel humility, a gospel grace to deal with the differences that exist between believers. Not to agree with everything, but you do have to love each other. And you need to show that love to one another. How do you relate with Christian believers who have differences with you? Are you generous and brotherly towards those who aren't dealing graciously to you? You say, well, you should see what they said about me. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, the Bible tells us, are your family. And you should treat them as such. We, we all know it's, it's so easy to point out inconsistencies and flaws in others. But Jesus' prayer commands us to engage with one another in a way that will glorify Him in front of the world. I mean, if, if God is embracing believing sinners as His children, then we need to embrace believing sinners as brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who are in Christ, those who have believed upon the word of Jesus Christ, have believed upon Him and have been converted, we know they still have problems. We know that there are those who are weak in faith. We know that. But there are still your brothers and sisters in Christ. God sees them as His sons and daughters. Thomas Watson writes this about unity. He says, There is but one God, and they that serve Him should be one. There is nothing that would render the true religion more lovely or make more converts to it than to see the professors of it tied together with the heartstrings of love. If God be one, let all that profess Him be of one mind and one heart. And thus fulfill Christ's prayer that they all may be one. We hear that. It sounds good. And, you know, it's Sunday morning and it's easy to say right now. But it does get hard, doesn't it? It gets hard when we come upon these difficulties that, that arise in the church from time to time. But you need to see, before you ever come to the difficulties that you have or that the church has within it, before you ever get there, you must all be gripped. You need to be gripped by the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And if you are not gripped by the love and grace of Jesus Christ, you will not be prepared for the divisions and the difficulties or whatever happens in the church. Because we see that God commands us to be united together in a bond of peace. We are compelled to do this in the gospel. 
And so prepare your heart now for those hard days, those hard times. Again, it doesn't mean that you ignore differences. But we do need to deal with them well. Those differences don't mean that those who differ with you are somehow no longer children of the Father in Jesus Christ. They they continue to be in Christ. Jesus does not lose his sheep. We know that. We confess that and profess that. And so our theology needs to be put to action when we look at one another. We need to see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus says this is something that needs to be so perfect. And we need to be continuing to grow in it so much that the world takes notice. That the world sees that this love for one another is visible. Again, to grow in this. To grow in this love for one another as Christ prays for you. That requires great humility. It requires you to be really humble. It requires you to have large hearts toward one another. It, allow, it requires you to have a willingness to see beyond your own horizons And consider the horizons of our God. Because we are commanded to strive towards the unity that marks Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that the world may see and know that we love one another. So it's a visible unity as well. You may say, well, why? Why does God require me to humble myself to love even Ben Thomas. Well, ultimately we see that the goal of this humility or the the point of this humility is in verse 24. Father, the, the unity is in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am in order to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants you to see and know his glory. Back at the beginning of this prayer in verse 5, Jesus prays to the Father that the glory that belonged to him before the foundation of the world, that that would be restored to him. And now at the end of the prayer, he says, Father, now I want those who would believe in the apostolic message, those who will be your children, I want them to see my glory now too. Jesus wants us to see his glory. Isn't that an amazing thing? He is inviting us into the eternal riches that belong only to him. Have you ever had a, a big, important party and you go through a guest list and you say, well, okay, we can invite those people, but not him. This is, this is a party celebrating me. So I don't want him to be there. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you love the Lord Jesus, he's not scouring his list and saying, well, I'll invite you, I'll invite you, but I don't want Ben Thomas there. I don't want him there. 
No, he is, he is inviting you in to see, to celebrate, to enjoy his glory that the Father restores to him that belonged to him from the foundation, before the foundation of the world. The glory of a, a resurrected Savior. And, and you know what's great about this is that, that we get to taste Jesus' glory even now. Haven't you tasted it? To be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. You know, the world may reject me, but God who made the world has loved me. Calls me his son. Calls me his daughter. Isn't that wonderful? To see and to be in the presence of the eternal triune God. To pray to him about your concerns. To have your prayers received. That love of God, he invites you before him. A God who stoops down to you. We get to taste his glory now. Isn't it wonderful? And yet the taste that we have now is, is only a taste. It's only an appetizer to the main course. You know, appetizers, their goals aren't to get you full. I do it wrong. Uh, I fill up on the appetizers and I'm not hungry at lunch or whenever. But, but we are, an appetizer is meant to kind of, you know, stir up your hunger so you're ready to eat. But Jesus is giving us, stirs up our desire. I want to see more of your glory. Because what we have is a foretaste of the day when we see our glorious Savior. That we would behold His face and the, and the veil is removed entirely. To be face to face with God, nothing hindering us. And what Jesus is praying for here will ultimately be realized one day. Upon his return, the church of God will be gathered together in the unity of Christ, gathered around the throne, a people from every tribe and nation and language, and will be crying out in one voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. With one voice, praising the Savior. God will be our God and we will be his people. And with one voice, we will be worshiping him. And so in God's providence, we find ourselves now, until that day comes, struggling for that otherworldly unity that marks the triune God. And so we need to reckon with the fact that this is what Jesus prays for when he prays for you. It may not answer the question of your big dilemma that you have to make, decision you have to make here soon. But what he prays for, his priority that you love the church, that you love one another. Jesus lived and died to secure this. Is this something that you pray for too? Do you pray for unity? It, it mattered to the Lord Jesus Christ. Does it matter to you? Is our unity with one another, is that a priority for you? Because it is a priority for Him. Do you, are you able to see beyond your own horizons to see the glory of our Savior and embrace those whom Christ has embraced? You know, the clearer we see the glory of Christ, the more we love Him, the more evident it will be that the love that the God the Father has for His Son is in you. Let's pray.
Our God in heaven, I pray that you would grant us this perfect unity that you prayed for so long ago. Help, help us, O oh Lord, to make this an important priority of our lives, that we would love one another as you have called us to love one another. But Lord, we need your spirit, because we can't do this on our own. We need you to fill our hearts with the love of Christ. We need to know and remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that is our only basis for loving one another and loving you. And so, God, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to love your prayer for us and to live a life that seeks to fulfill it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.